Good morning. As many of you may have heard, my mother died recently. Thank you for your thoughts, prayers, texts, emails, and notes. Death often makes us nostalgic, most especially because we look through someone's personal effects, particularly photographs of parties, first day of school, playing in the snow, holidays, and vacations. I have two boxes of pictures at the rectory that were in my mother's assisted living room that I have been enjoying. There was one little album that I apparently made for my mother that is entitled 2015 Disney World Trip that we went on as a family. By we, I mean my mother that was in a wheelchair, my sister and my brother-in-law, and their six kids that at the time were all under the age of seven. Let me repeat that. Six kids under the age of seven and my mother in a wheelchair. I mean, what a boost to my commitment to celibacy that trip was. <laughs> my mother had bad knees, so she was in the wheelchair. Another picture showed my sister, sister's four youngest kids in double strollers and the last two seemingly walking free. The picture shows us moving through the park looking like a mini Disney World parade. And the pictures reminded me that it was cold and raining, and the look on my face was, one of the pictures is so instructive, it looks like I was wondering if I had in fact died and gone to hell. <laughs> for many years going, I have paid for one day at Disney World as a combined gift for Christmas and birthday gifts for my sister's kids, including this year, and that year, it was the first year, I am so nice as an uncle. I remember that first trip vividly because, first of all, I actually went, but second of all, unbeknownst to me, my sister was stressed about the price tag of my gift. I think it was $800. So she was determined to get my money's worth, which included being up at 6 a.m., dressing six kids in costumes, and being at the park at the opening bell, and staying until it closed. That's six kids under seven for, what, maybe 12, 15 hours in the happiest place on earth, my foot. <laughs> Apparently, she thought I would be pleased by the pace. I was not. I even labeled one of the pictures the Disney Death March. <laughs> one chronicled step was a place called Princess Fairytale Hall. I remember it visit vividly because my sister and I got into an argument there. I remember asking her what kind of a ride this was as we waited over an hour. And she told me, Richard, this isn't a ride. We're going to meet the princesses. And I remember not liking her tone at all. And not satisfied, I asked, no, what are we going to do here? And, we're gonna, and she responded, we're going to meet the princesses, Richard. And I said, wait. We're going to wait in line for over an hour to see some high school girls dressed like Disney princesses. And then she told me to shut up. <laughs> in the pictures, the kids were mesmerized as they stared longingly at Disney royalty. They got autographs, too. And I was assigned to take pictures of the whole thing. And seemingly out of boredom, I looked over to one of the other princesses who was interacting with a couple, and I remember looking for their kids and realized they waited for an hour and they had no children with them. Two adults waited for an hour to meet Cinderella like she was real. They hugged her, they talked to her, they got pictures with her, they were mesmerized. I realized as Christians we're not so supposed to judge, but these people were wacko. 
I also realized I might have overthought it a bit, but as I looked at the pictures, and the one of them that says, the crazy people next door, I started wondering whether that couple would ever have waited in line for the God of the universe at mass, or to go to confession. Did they ever even have such glee and fracks going into an adoration chapel? Did they ever hug a person in need like they did those princesses? Were their ordinary lives so awful so that they would prefer to suspend reality that much? It seemed idolatrous putting this whole experience before God. But again, of course, I probably overthought. When our Lord was in the desert, he faced three temptations. And in each of them, there is one thing in common, the temptation to put something before God. And truly, this is at the heart of all temptation to put something before God, including the happiness, happiest place on earth. The wound of original sin still makes us want to turn inward and self-medicate or suspend reality rather than pursue authentic happiness in God, which includes things like sacrifice. We're led to believe that happiness will only be ours if we get out and get it at Disney World, online, on the playing field, on the internet, at a bar, or a smorgasbord. More, more, more. And if God delays in satisfying us, it only reinforces the conviction that we must go out and get happiness on our own. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the desert for 40 days to be tempted by the devil, and we mark that event every year with our 40 days of Lent. We go with him in the desert each Lent, and there we face our own temptations that have mounted perhaps throughout the whole year. Make no mistake, whenever we make an effort to grow closer to God and leave sinful habits behind, we can be sure that the devil won't be far behind either. That adversity is a part of life, and Jesus wasn't exempt, as we heard in our gospel today, as well as in Hebrews when he says, we have a great high priest who was tested in every way, yet without sin. Having experienced our weakness, Jesus shows us that adversity and temptation does not mean failure and certainly doesn't mean, have to mean sin. In fact, temptation can be turned into something great called virtue when we turn away from it and choose Christ. And to help us counter temptation, the church recommends the timeless tools that we practice particularly during Lent, that is prayer fasting and almsgiving. Prayer is essential because it is the recognition that God is God and we are not. By turning to him, we turn out of ourselves and bringing him our needs and desires, reaffirming our trust in him, and quite simply praising him for his goodness and his omnipotence as the God of the universe. Fasting puts into flesh what we say in our prayers that the things of this world cannot ultimately satisfy us. So we prove it to ourselves and we prove it to God by purposely withdrawing from food or drink or TV or technology or chocolates or anything we give up for lens. We say by our actions that God is more important and ultimately more satisfying. And finally, almsgiving goes one step further than fasting by not only denying ourselves of certain things, but actually 
giving away what we have for the sake of others. That is, if I can part with even some of what I have, then my actions say that God is more important than even my stuff. These practices make us more like Jesus, who at Scripture said, learned obedience through what he suffered. But we don't like the word obedience today. We're told that I must be free to do what I want. But where does that get us? Well, for, it satisfies us at Disney World for a few hours, but it's not really happiness. It's temporary pleasure. In fact, when we look around, it seems like that those who have the most freedom are also the, the, the ones that are the ha having the most struggle in obtaining long, the lasting happiness of which the gospel speaks. Obedience to Christ's teaching and teaches us the last happiness comes from God, lasting happiness comes from God alone. And the only thing that dampens happiness is my propensity to sin. And the further I move from God, the more easily I can become enslaved and thus unhappy. During this Lent, let us open ourselves to the age-old practices of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, that God will remind us his strength is greater than our weakness, and that God's knowledge surpasses my ignorance. And finally, God's love is greater than my indifference. Coming to Mass on Sunday and observing Lent helps us in our resolve to avoid the step from temptation to sin. So let us take this season for what it is quite seriously.